everyone again. Yes, I am Bruno. And in case you can't tell, I'm not from around here, but I'm from America. It's South America. It's just like America, but South. So we read the text already and we prayed already. So to start a sermon, I need your help. How many books are there in the Bible again? Say again. 66. Okay. And how many books are there in the Old Testament? Say loud. I'm kind of deaf, people. 39. And in the New Testament? 27. Yeah. There you go. It's not a tricky question. Did you notice that Isaiah has 66 chapters? So just like the Bible has 66 books, the book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. So I hope that helps you to remember. And just like the Bible has 39 chapters in the Old Testament and 27 chapters in the New Testament, many commentators, not all, but Many commentators understand that we can divide the book of Isaiah in two basic main sessions. From chapter 1 to 39, we have more oracles on judgment and forward until chapter 66, from 40 to 66, Isaiah talks more about hope. So just like the Bible has 66 chapters, this book has 66 books. This book has 66 chapters that can more or less be divided from chapter 1 to 39 and then 40 to 66, talking about judgment and hope. It's not 39 chapters that talk only about judgment and then 27 only about hope. But as we read the book, most commentators at least understand that there is more judgment and there are more hope. So I hope that, I hope, sorry for the redundancy, that this might help you as you are reading Isaiah. And also many commentators understand that what we read in chapter 1 is a window into the whole book. That chapter 1 is an introduction to the whole book, but it also summarizes a lot of this judgment and hope that we are going to see through the whole book of Isaiah. So if we see the book again, uh, see this chapter, on verse, uh, he begins on verse 2, talking about how God is displeased with the sin of Judah. Then on verse 10, there is an emphasis on how God hates sin. On verse 16, God tells the people to purify themselves and talks about the judgment that will come if they refuse to purify. But God also talks about the hope for those who repent. On verse 21, God talks again about the sin of Jerusalem. And on verse 24, God says once more how he will judge Judah for their sins, but how at the same time there is hope for all those who repent. So, going back to something that we were talking last week, who is Isaiah? Who is this Isaiah? 
Well, we we read verse one. It says that Isaiah is the son of Amos. Yeah, I know that doesn't help a lot, right? Uh, we don't know who Amos was. In case you are wondering, this Amos is not the Amos, the prophet Amos, who wrote another book in the Bible. Uh, truth be told, we don't know a lot about Isaiah the person. There are some biographical details about Isaiah in the book, and there are many traditions we are never sure how much we can trust these traditions. It's like when we read a book like Jeremiah, we feel like we know Jeremiah a lot because we see the person Jeremiah. Not so much with Isaiah, but we know one thing about Isaiah, that he was a prophet. So what he's saying, he's not saying of himself, but this is what the Lord told Isaiah to talk. And what is a prophet? You were talking about that last week. Maybe we think of a prophet as somebody who predicts the future. Well, sometimes prophets do predict the future, but that's not essentially what a prophet is. If we want to understand basically what is a prophet, we use the phrase that prophets are covenant attorneys. So what is happening in Israel is that Israel, and in this case Judah, is in a covenant with God. And the prophet Isaiah is coming to them and saying, something is wrong. You are breaking this covenant. So that's the way that we should think about a, about a prophet. And what is a covenant? How are we to understand what is a covenant? Well, I think we can summarize that in the Bible, a covenant is a special relationship between God and man. It's not just any kind of superficial relationship. It's a very deep, serious, sacred, sullen relationship that God establishes with man. And we have some covenants in the Bible. And these covenants have some things in common. Covenants have laws. You are supposed to follow the laws that are in the covenant. If you break these laws, you are cursed. If you follow these laws, then you are blessed. And covenants have promises. God promises to do some things to those who are in a covenant with him. So, Israel and Judah were in a covenant with God. And here we have to stop and think a little about this. Different theologians will say slightly different things about this. But here's my take. My take, which is not exclusively mine, but the way some people understand, is that God entered into a covenant if into a covenant with Israel through Abraham back in Genesis. So Abraham was the forefather of the nation of Israel. And God entered into a covenant with Abraham that extended to his children, the nation of Israel. 
And then God expanded that covenant with Abraham in Mount Sinai when he took the nation of Israel from Egypt in the Exodus. And then he expanded this covenant even more with King David when he promised King David that there will always be a descendant from David who would be king over Israel. And now we come here to Isaiah. And what specifically did God promise Israel in this covenant? Remember, covenants have promises. What exactly was promised to Israel in this covenant? I think we can summarize in three things. So first, land. They would possess the land of Canaan. That was their promised land. Second, offspring. God promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of heaven or the sand of the sea. And third, blessing. Somehow, Israel would bless all the families of the earth. So land, offspring, and blessing are the promises in this covenant. And what do we see here in what we read in Isaiah? Well, in simple terms, they are breaking the covenant. So as we mentioned last week, Isaiah prophesied under the reigns of Uzziah, Jotan, Ahaz and Hezekiah. And I think that one of the most important things that we need to think about these kings is that they overall were not bad military commanders. That's one of the things that kings are supposed to do, right? They're supposed to lead the nation into battle, protect the nation against the foreign enemies. They were not too bad at doing that. They were smart They gain important victories. But although this might sound good, that was actually part of the problem. What were these kings doing? Mostly, they were trying to build alliances with other nations, with Assyria or Egypt or Syria, so on. Things that would be totally fine for the U.S. to do. The U.S. builds alliances, or Brazil. Brazil has alliances as well. But that's not what Judah was supposed to do. They were not supposed to go after alliances with other nations. They were supposed to trust in the Lord for their protection. So it is very subtle. But if you look at verse 4, God is saying that they are basically Gentiles. You know that Gentiles is the name that they refer to the other nations. It's subtle, but it's it's right there. They are saying that you are basically Gentiles. You are just like the other nations. So this is what happening. They are becoming just like any other nation and failing to be a special people to God. Ahaz and Hezekiah they reign under the threat of the Assyrian Assyrian Empire. We are going to see that a lot. Um, Assyria was kind of the superpower of that day that was threatening everybody else. And so what these kings had in 
strategy, military intelligence, they often lacked in spiritual leadership for the people. The kings were supposed to be leaders for the king. They were supposed to be heads in this covenant, to represent the people before God in their covenant. And all too often, they were failing to do so. Instead of trusting in God, they were relying on their own understanding. And the same thing can be said about us today, right? So often, we don't trust in God. We forget that we are in a special relationship with God. And instead, we rely on our own understanding. So here's what I want us to see today. God invites us to stop, listen, and come to Him. Stop, listen, and come to Him. So first, stop. What is happening here in Isaiah 1? I think many of us can see the picture of what is going on here. This is a judgment. This is a trial. Remember, they are in a covenant. And prophets are covenant attorneys. So what is happening is that through the prophet, God is coming to the nation in a trial and say, Hey, we had a covenant. And you are breaking this covenant. We need to set this straight. So this is what basically is going on here in chapter 1. And the sentence of this judgment is not good. So, if we want to understand really well, uh, I'm going to give you more Bible reading to do. I know that you are so happy with that. But it's very helpful to really fully understand what is going on in Isaiah and in Isaiah 1. To go back to the first five books of the Bible. Because that's where the covenant was established. Particularly, it's good for us to go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 30, in particular, is very telling. Uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to them. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. Now, compare that to Isaiah 1, what we read on verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. So just like heaven and earth were called as witnesses when the covenant was first established, now they are called again as witness to say, Hey, you were there, right, when this covenant was established, so come here and witness that these children, these people, have broken the covenant. Uh, 
it's very helpful for us to read the few last chapters in Deuteronomy to understand this. Deuteronomy 21, uh, Deuteronomy 28 talks about the curses that will come to Israel and Judah in case they broke the covenant. And that's exactly what we see here in Isaiah 1. Remember, uh, they would have the land. Verse 7, they are not controlling the land. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. They would be like the stars of the heaven, but now they are few in number. Verse 9, if the Lord of hosts had not left a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And instead of being a blessing to the other nations, what is happening? They are oppressed by the other nations. Verse 7 again. In your very presence, foreigners devour, devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. So, whether we like it or not, we are in a covenant with God. It doesn't matter if we are aware of that or not. We are in a covenant with God. It's not the same covenant as Israel was and Judah, but we are in a covenant with God. That's why the Bible is divided into Old Testament and New Testament. Testament here is just a different way of saying covenant, which is taken from Hebrews, from Hebrews 9. But we are, every one of us here, we are in a covenant with God. There are two fundamental covenants in the Bible. There is a covenant of works with Adam, and there is a covenant of grace with Jesus. All the covenants in the Old Testament that you can think of, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant at Mount Sinai with David, all those covenants point to the covenant of grace with Jesus. God chose Israel as a special nation so that through that nation he would bring salvation through Jesus. That's what that covenant was all about and that's why it was so important that they kept the covenant. So that salvation would come through Jesus. Am I making this up? I'm not making this up. Check Galatians 3.16 in the New Testament. Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Singular. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one into your offspring, who is Christ. Many people memorize John 3.16, right? And it's good to do so. It's a very good verse that summarizes a lot in the Bible. I want to suggest that we should also memorize Galatians 3.16. It's really important as well. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. 
Jesus is the offspring of David. That covenant was pointing to Jesus. And that's why it was so important that that covenant was kept. Because it is through Jesus that God blesses all the families of the earth. All of us are in a covenant with God. It's just a matter of a simple choice. Are you in a broken covenant of works with Adam trying to win your salvation by your own merits? Or are you in a covenant of grace with Jesus, relying on his perfect work for your salvation? Either you are with Adam and you are God's enemy or you are in peace with God through Jesus. So how specifically are they breaking the covenant? They are breaking the covenant. How exactly? God invites them to listen. So stop. You are breaking this covenant. Now listen exactly how you are breaking the covenant. So after calling heaven and earth as witnesses, God turns to Israel and he says on verse 10, Remember, he says, hear heavens and earth. Now he says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of your God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Jump to verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So how exactly are they breaking the covenant? Well, for one thing, they are not thinking straight. They became irrational. Sin makes us irrational. Verse 3. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's creed. But Israel does not know my people do not understand. Uh, I never had a, an ox or a donkey, so I'm not sure. But I had a dog. And my dog knew me, or at least he knew that I was the one who brought food. So he was smart enough to know that he should be a good dog because or else I wouldn't give him food. No, I would give him food anyways, but my dog knew me. So God is not saying that they are like an ox or a donkey. He's saying that they are worse because at least an ox or a donkey knows the person who brings them food. And they did not recognize that God was the one who brought them not only food, but everything. And maybe you know that when the Bible talks about knowing, especially in the Old Testament, it's not talking merely about something intellectual. It's talking about something relational. 
I mean, I can say that I know the president, but I don't really know him. I mean, it's just a guy on TV, but I know my family. I know my friends. I know my church. We are in a relationship. And Judah was supposed to know God because that's the God who took them from Egypt. They were in a covenantal relationship, but they forgot God. Another way that they are breaking the covenant is that they are not listening. One of the most famous passages in the Old Testament comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4 4 and 5. 6 verses 4 and 5. It's a prayer called the Shema. Shema is the verb in Hebrew for hear or listen. And it says like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Hear, O Israel. One of the problems we've seen is that we fail to listen. Isn't that something that we see in the New Testament as well? James 1, verse 19. Know these, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We can also quote Proverbs twelve fifteen: The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. This is something that we are going to see a lot through Isaiah. The fine art of listening. Isaiah 30, 15. In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Too often we need to stop talking and start listening. Another way that they are breaking the covenant is that they have an empty religiosity. You see, the problem with Israel is not so much that they were breaking the ceremonial law. Maybe you heard about that, that we can divide the law in that covenant in ceremonial judicial and moral ceremonial judicial and moral well according to what we read in this chapter they were not having that much trouble following the ceremonial law they were keeping their feasts they were doing the new moon and whatever but what was god's reaction verse 12 When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my cards? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. God was sick with their empty 
religiosity. They were fulfilling the ceremonial law, but not the moral law. We see the moral law in Exodus 20. We begin to see the ceremonial law in Exodus 25. There is a reason why 20 comes before 25. The ceremonial law should be an expression of their moral law. And they were failing to do that. And that's God's reaction. To be sick when they were coming before him. Fourth, they were not doing good. Look again at verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. 17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Skip to verse 23. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. And the widow's cause does not come to them. This is something deeply rooted in the covenant at Mount Sinai. There are at least, at least, a dozen references about caring for the fatherless and the widow. And the sojourner. Fatherless, widow, and sojourner. See uh, Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. The fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, it's a biblical expression that literally talks about these three but it's talking about people in general who are poor, who need help, who are vulnerable. And you cannot read the Bible and escape noticing that God has a special care for vulnerable people. And finally, one specific way that they are breaking the covenant is through idolatry. See verse 29. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. And you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. A lot of the idolatry that they practiced had to do with worshiping trees. So that's the reference to oaks and gardens and all. And one thing about idolatry is that we become just like the thing that we worship. Look at Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, 
but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You become just like the thing that you worship. Um, one of my professors, Gregory Bill, wrote a book with that title, You Become What You Worship. Uh, so what happens when we worship Jesus? We become like Jesus. Second Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When we worship Jesus, when we worship idols, we become just like the idols that we worship. Maybe you are not worshiping a tree. I, I, I guess not. But you are worshiping something I know, because that's what the Bible tells us. You will become just like the thing that you worship. So try to worship Jesus. God is not impressed by empty religiosity. Actually, he's sickened by it. Think about 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I want to say this very, very carefully. It is possible to come to the church every Sunday. And I'm saying this to me as well. And yet, not be pleasing God. Hear what God says in James 1, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the word. Think also about Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Listen to Psalm 50. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills... I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the word and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. 
and you shall glorify me. Micah 6. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to, to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So stop, listen, and come. Judah is breaking the covenant. There are many specific ways in which they are breaking the covenant. What comes next? Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We need to be transformed by God. Our sins need to be cleansed. But how that happens? Verse 5. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the heart, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Judah is sick. She is struck down. There is no soundness in her. Salvation is often not easy. Verse 24. I will get relief from my enemies. We are God's enemies. We have to be cleansed for our draws with lie. You know what lie is? I, I had to check. I skipped chemistry. Children don't skip chemistry. Uh, lice caustic soda is basically the thing that we put in the sink when the sink is clogged. It's not a pretty view. It has to burn the filth. That's us. Our filthness has to be burned. But God wants to take that filth and turn it into a vessel of honor. How that happens? Through the, bub, through the bud of Jesus. One of the things that we are going to see in Isaiah as well is that Isaiah talks about a servant. There is a servant who comes and who suffers in our place. And the last passage in Isaiah that talks about this servant in chapter 53 says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom? has the arm of the Lord been revealed. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, 
smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we were healed. Judah is struck down, smitten, sick. Jesus became struck down, smitten, sick in our place. Chapter 54 talks about an eternal covenant of peace. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion of you. This covenant of peace is the covenant that we can have with God through Jesus Christ. Remember, covenants of works with Adam and your lost, or a covenant of grace, an eternal covenant of love with Jesus. Jesus fulfilled this new covenant on our behalf. He has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus paid it all. All to him I own. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Amen.